0: draw our attention to the Apostle Paul's primary metaphor here for understanding our relationship with God and with one another, which is the relationship of a household, and specifically as kids who are growing up in a household, okay, as siblings. And so last week, we looked at the fact that in Jesus Christ, we have all become sons, co-inheritors with Christ. We have become not just second-class citizens in the family of God, but the very sons of God, the inheritors. And because of that, as we saw, all of the distinctions that we make between high and low, between rich and poor, between, um, between master and slave, all of those distinctions are kind of relativized and no longer become most significant and most defining. We're going to build on that more this morning as we look at an aspect of our salvation through the lens of adoption. Now, if you read the New Testament and, it, uh, and you watch for ways that it describes or explains what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be saved, if you look for the words of what Jesus accomplished on your behalf, there's a whole bunch of them. Okay, There's redemption there's salvation, okay, Uh, and then there is also adoption. This is a primary New Testament metaphor to explain what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And before we even read the passage this morning, just, just reflect on what adoption is. It's the transition from a family of origin to a new family. Now, as we read this passage, as we reflect on it this morning, our goal is to think through that reality, specifically in terms of a transition. One last way to think about what happens in Jesus Christ that's pretty common in all the metaphors the Bible uses to describe our salvation is before and after. Okay? And so we were, and now we are. Okay? And it's that transition, it's that crossing The threshold, or that entering into the household of God, that I want to focus on with us this morning. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 1 through 7. I mean, Paul says, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. father so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through god let's pray father i pray for each one here who knows you personally that they would feel the weight of that word no longer that they would understand and comprehend the transition that has taken place in Christ. And I ask, God, that we would seek to live as we truly are, no longer as slaves, but as adopted sons. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the metaphor that Paul uses here is pretty easy to follow, even though it's not terribly comparable to modern uh, households. Here he talks about an heir who's growing up in the household and one day everything, the whole property will belong to him, but as a kid he hasn't come into his full rights yet. Okay? Now maybe if you watch period dramas from you know, the 1880s London's, maybe this becomes a little bit more clear. Uh, Or I would even suggest a way that's been helpful this week for me to reflect on this is to think of a child who is orphaned by his incredibly wealthy parents, right? And so his Alfred, his butler, his steward, whoever it is, oversees the child, helps him, takes care of him out of his parents' wealth, and is seeking to prepare him for adulthood where his job as helper will no longer be necessary. But it doesn't change the fact that as a kid, he's just like every other kid. He might have a larger allowance, but he doesn't have all of his wealth at his disposal. He might have a lot more rooms in his house, but he cannot say, this house belongs to me. He cannot put it up for sale you know, and, and buy the space station on the moon that he wants to as a five-year-old or something like that, right? That's kind of the idea here. And what he's suggesting here is that is comparable the condition of the Jewish people before Jesus came. And so he says, it's not that they were slaves in some way, but they were slave-like. It's not that they were not a free people, but their freedom was future tense. There was an anticipation to it. There was a looking forward to things. And if you read through the Old Testament, or even if you remember, as we were looking at the life of Abraham just a few weeks ago, how many of the promises made to Israel were promises in the long future of what God would do. Okay? They were a people of hope. And so he says here, it's as if they were an heir, anticipating, expecting the promises, prepared for God to do what he said he would do, but in a holding pattern and waiting until then Now, why is he talking about this? Why is this significant to us this morning? Remember, the primary problem in the Galatian church is that a new group of itinerant teachers have come in, and all of these itinerant teachers are Jews, bloodline descendants of Abraham, who were faithfully following Judaism until Jesus came. And so they've accepted Jesus, and now they come and say, all right, you non-Jewish people... If you want the whole package of what it means to be a part of the family of God, yes, you need Jesus, our Messiah, but you also need Moses, and the law of Moses, and circumcision, and the ritual laws, and the priesthood, and all of these other things. Okay. And so what Paul is arguing here is that the Galatians, who have already been adopted and are part of the family and full-blown, as we saw last week, inheritors are being tempted to surrender back to childhood, to put themselves under a manager again, to surrender their rights, their freedoms, their privileges as a fully incorporated family member to being like a servant. That's the issue at hand here. Now, as I read again out of verse 1, you'll see how this kind of all falls into place. Look at verse 1. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child... Read, Jew before Jesus came is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Okay, now I want you to notice the pronoun there in verse three. In the same way, we also. Paul is not referring to we collectively, you and me and I and everybody else. He's saying we Jews also. Okay? Now that becomes pretty clear because look at what happens in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, do you see the d- distinction there between we and you? We Jews and you non-Jews. That's the distinction. Okay. But here he's talking about the Jews and he says we... When we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, Paul does something here that is jarring, striking even. Okay? And what I'm saying, or what is striking and jarring about this, is he refers to being under the law or to being Old Covenant Jews as not just being enslaved, but enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. World. Now this um, phrase here for elementary principles, it's a single word and it's a difficult one, okay? Here, the idea could be elementary principles like your ABCs. In other words, Paul might be saying here, Judaism was the basics. It was the kindergarten level, but now we're moving on. So don't go back to the beginning if you've already mastered that. But the way that he uses this phrase Consistently across the New Testament and the way he uses it in a family of other phrases makes us believe here that he's talking about the primary systems that humans use to organize their lives and that there is a spiritual component to this as well. So another way to read this and it might be this in your translation is the elementary spirits of the world. Okay. Now, Look at how he handles this same phrase in verse 8. Formerly, you Gentiles, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who are by nature not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Okay. And so here he takes idolatry. And he says, idolatry is enslavement to the elementary principles of the world. Now, why is this striking? Because Paul, the student of one of the most famous rabbis in all of history, Gamaliel, compares being under the law before Jesus came and being under idols as having something in common. He says they're both elementary principles of the world. And you go, now, wait a minute. I've read the Old Testament and... The law is not idolatrous. It comes from God. In fact, it's first and primary commandment. Number one, no other gods before me. This maneuver is is striking, and I have a feeling it's supposed to be. But remember, Paul is only comparing these things in a limited way. His Jewish brothers and sisters before Christ came were in a holding pattern that was slave-like. But those who did not know God, they were in outright full-blown slavery. There's a difference here, a very important one. The Jews were not idolaters. They truly knew God. And what they were waiting for, they were waiting for because it had yet to be accomplished. Do you remember what Jesus says to the woman in Samaria? She says, our parents, our family worships here on this mountain, but your family, the Jews, worship in Jerusalem. And he says, you worship what you do not know. But we, the Jews, worship what we know. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, talking about all the religions of the world, God has overlooked this time of ignorance, but now is calling all to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's a difference between these categories. But what Paul wants to draw out is the surprising similarity. That the difference between a God-given holding pattern and an idolatrous holding pattern is true. One is destructive and corruptive, but now that Jesus has come, the message is to the ends of the earth for Jews and Gentiles, both here and abroad, and the message is the same, and the gift is the same, and salvation is the same. Now, why does he need to address both of these? Because remember, the people that he's addressing, like most of us in this room, are not jews and the temptation is well i walked away from idolatry and i know the living god now through jesus christ and i also come to discover that the living god has been speaking to a particular people for generations for thousands of years and so these people are coming in and saying you need your old testament you need to enter in and take upon you the yoke of the law of moses and be the people of god and paul's saying now hold on a minute judaism was not idolatry but it was temporary it was awaiting it was anticipating it was shadow and now the reality has come now this brings us to a really important point before we go any further and the question is what is the relationship between us as christians today and the old testament and more specifically the law of moses or the old covenant that it contains if you've ever read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll find an extensive amount of rules and regulations, behaviors and practices that God asks his people Israel to maintain. The way that they eat, the way that they worship, the way that they dress, the way that they go about their civil codes, how government works, their polity as a nation, the land that's given to them and how it's prescribed, all of that is given by God, stated by God, required or commanded by God. In fact, if you've ever had a conversation with a non-Christian in these days, one of the accusations that's always thrown at Christians is that we cherry-pick the things that we obey in Scripture and the things that we disobey. And so we make a hardcore line about uh, sexuality, and we might even quote from the Old Testament to do so, but we're quite happy to eat our lobster or our bacon. Right? but what is often missed and what Paul is trying to point to here is actually these issues of how we read the Old Testament is not about cherry picking at all it's a recognition of the significance of what Jesus has actually done it's right at the heart of the gospel if somebody says why do we not eat bacon or why do we not um, you know, have a priesthood or a temple the answer is because Jesus came Remember, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think that I came to destroy the law. And when he says the law, he's talking about the same thing Paul is talking about here. Don't think that I came to destroy or overthrow the law. I came so that it would be fulfilled. Okay? And that is exactly what Paul says here in verse 4. Look at, but, okay? So the Jews were in a holding pattern. Children under a manager, not receiving their full inheritance. Those of us who are not Jews... We were given over to idolatry, worshiping things that are not God. But, verse 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the fullness of time. That's a phrase that's worth meditating on. It means a whole bunch of things, right? One of the things it clearly means is exactly when God intended, right? Jesus' arrival was planned and executed as planned. But another thing it means in the context of this metaphor is on the cusp of our adulthood. Another way to read this, if you were to really stretch the metaphor, is but on your 18th birthday, right? The idea here is one of that Time that he's been talking about where we were children under managers coming to an end. Okay. Again, the Old Testament is future oriented. God will do. God will do. And Jesus came and God is doing. Okay. If you read the prophets of the Old Testament, start in Isaiah, they really heavily start to talk about the one who is to come, the Messiah. And effectively, one of the primary messages of Isaiah all the way through Malachi is He's coming. He's coming. The time is drawing near. Here's another detail of what to look for He will be born in Bethlehem, right? But He's coming. He's coming. And then you get to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the final of the prophets. And his message is different it's not He's coming, it's He's here right? The Lord told me that the one that I see, the Spirit descending upon from heaven, and hear a voice from heaven decrying his identity, he is the Christ, the Lamb of God. He's coming, but now he's here in the fullness of time. God sent his Son. And then notice here, God sent his Son, but his Son was born of a woman, God is sending his pre incarnate, before birth, already divine, already real Jesus, the Son of God. But he becomes a human being, born of a woman. And not just born of a woman, but notice, born under the law, just like all of his holding pattern brothers and sisters. Here's another way to just twist this metaphor slightly. If you read all of the Old Testament, God lays out a covenant with Israel and they are called to keep half of it, right? To obey these commandments, to not do these things and to do these things. But what happens? They're not faithful. They don't keep their side of the bargain. They don't keep the commandments of God. They continuously rebel and choose idols over the living God, etc., etc. So here's another way to think of this. Yes, yes, Israel was set up to be the inheriting son of God. But he didn't do what was required. And so Jesus comes as not just a representative of all human beings, but a representative of Israel. Remember that the title son of God is given to Adam. It's given to Israel. Jesus comes to be the son of God, where the other sons of God, if you will, have failed. Now, none of those other sons of God were sent by God, right? None of them were divine in and of themselves. But Jesus takes on humanity, but he also takes on Israel. He becomes, he becomes a Jew, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Now notice that pattern there. Slavery, redemption, sonship. If you're familiar again with the Old Testament, that sounds like something. Specifically, it sounds like the Exodus. Remember, Israel already knows what it's like to have been slaves under the thumb of Egyptian lords. And God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm brings them out. In fact, the word redemption in the New Testament, its primary root idea is the Exodus. The reason why it uses redemption in the New Testament to talk about our salvation is because when we say, what is redemption? We go, well, let's read Exodus, okay? And so they are slaves who are redeemed and then made sons. If you go back and read the Exodus, you will see all three of those. Does God just set Israel free because he hates oppression and then they get out to the wilderness and he goes, well, you've got it from here. You are now masters of your own lives. No one is in charge of you and just sets them off. No. He calls them into relationship. He calls them into covenant. I have redeemed you so that you would be my children. He doesn't just free them because he's anti-authoritarian. He frees them up from a wicked and horrible king and brings him into their benevolent king and his relationship, okay? Here's what Paul is getting at without coming out and saying it here in Galatians. He's saying that the exodus was a rehearsal for the final performance. He's saying it was a rehearsal dinner for the coming wedding. It was just a preview, a trailer of what God would do. And this is not Paul's idea. The gospel writers tell us that when Jesus was transfigured and James and John and Peter suddenly saw Jesus shining with all of his glory as he was, truly divine, unrestrained, unheld back, and he was speaking with Moses and Elijah. Luke tells us that he was speaking concerning his, and your English translation probably says departure, But the Greek word there is a transliteration of a Hebrew word. And I bet you can guess what it is. He was speaking of his exodus. So effectively, Paul takes this metaphor, one that his brothers and sisters should understand, and say, we know what it's like to be slaves, redeemed, and become sons. But the true fulfillment of that, the real Passover, the true exodus... The great redeemer was never going to be Moses. It was always looking forward to the one who was come and now he has come. And so the idea here is my Jewish brothers and sisters, receive your adoption, enter into your inheritance and don't consult the manager anymore. No longer see yourself as having to stoop under these things that Jesus has come and stooped under and accomplish so fully and completely, we no longer have to. But when we read that story, it makes sense. It's still totally worth writing a fairy tale or a Hollywood movie about, right? A kid who doesn't live up to his inheritance, totally fails, puts everything at risk, and then somebody substitutionally steps in, fixes everything, and hands it back to him. And they all live happily ever after. That's one story there's a second one here in Galatians, and it's one that's more common to us. So let's go through the same story again, but let's talk about what it's like for us as Gentiles. Look again at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak? And worthless elementary principles of the world Whose slaves you want to be once more Here's the difference between the story of the Jews And the story of the Gentiles The Jews lived in anticipation Knowing the true and living God And the fact that he would come and save them as he promised Gentiles were in the darkness We were ignorant to this in fact, if you scale this back to your personal testimony, more than likely, you jive with that a lot more. Right? Some of us grew up within the church, were stewarded by the church, were managed by the church's children, and then we came to a point where we took the inheritance as our own. And it was no longer Christianity is my family religion, it's Jesus is my savior. But for other of us, we were just off doing our own thing experiencing all the consequences of idolatry and not knowing what or why or how until we heard the gospel and received the invitation. You see, one of these children, like I said, is more like an orphan who grows up in the household, who knows the wealth and everything that is coming to him and is just waiting for the day. The other one is just a street kid who has nothing and nobody. Nobody and then is invited into the family. Listen to how Paul puts it in the book of Ephesians. Again, if you're not a Jew this morning, this is addressing you. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel strangers to the covenant of promise having no hope and without god in the world do you hear all the alienation language separated estranged no hope without god strangers to the covenant and the promises but now paul says in verse 13 In Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, those who were near, the Jews, and those who were far, the Gentiles, made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So what's the point? The point is, these Gentile converts that Paul introduced to Jesus in the city of Galatia are now being tempted to trade one form of slavery for another. To put it another way, they have everything the Jews were ever hoping for already in Jesus. Now, again, as we have talked about before, I don't think many of us who are Christians today are tempted into the ways of Judaism. I don't think many of us have people in our life who like the troublers here in Galatia are saying, look, if you really want to know God, you've got to keep the law of Moses. Change your diet, the way you dress. Go to the temple, right? Observe the Sabbath, all of these things. But the temptation is still real for us. Let me give it to you again. He says here, verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. Remember that before and after that I mentioned? The transition that I mentioned? There was a time where you did not know God. But now, not only do you know God, Paul says, but you are known by God. You are in relationship with the living God. He says, if that transition has taken the place, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Now, like I mentioned, Paul ties this to idolatry, sure. But by using this idea of the elementary principles, he's recognizing that these idols are meaning makers, structure givers. They shape our lives. They determine what the good life is and what the bad life is. And because of that, they determine how you live rightly to get the good life and what you avoid that is wrong to avoid the bad life. And they determine worth of other people. These are the ones who are succeeding and the ones who are failing. In other words, last week he talked about the fact that in Jesus Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All of those invoke the elementary principles. Ways to view life that divides it up and makes order and sense of what it is. Here's what I'm suggesting to you. That Paul is warning us against isms. Ways that order life. That are natural to the world around us and probably natural to where you came from but are no longer possible in Jesus Christ consider wealth let's call it materialism right it's a very simple philosophy the more you have the happier you will be in fact there's other premises the more you have the better you are at life the more you have the more worthy you are of other people's intentions The more you have, the better, okay? But when we encounter Jesus Christ, we have to forsake that elementary way of seeing things. We have to recognize that the wealth that we have in Jesus Christ, which is so much more than just the size of a bank account, changes the way we view those things. And it doesn't change just the way we see wealth, but the way we see the wealthy. It doesn't just change the way we see wealth, but the way we see poor. It doesn't just change wealth, it changes the way we see our current circumstances. What we need, what we have, what we don't have. Take nationalism. Nationalism says being a part of this nation is most significant. It says that this world is a world of scarcity. Where only the strong survive, and so we as patriots are going to stand and we are going to put ourselves first. But in Jesus Christ, that's relativized. Now, I don't think that stands against patriotism or love of country, but the concern here is not ideas, it's the ultimizing of ideas, right? It's the elevating as being the defining. Let me put it a different way. Think of adoption. Adoption means this is now your family. This is now your household. These are now your brothers and sisters. This is now your home. Now tell me honestly, is it possible for us as Christians to live our lives as if we're just visiting the household of God but defined by another family? That's Paul's concern. Paul's concern is that we would smuggle the values of another household into the family of God. And that gets really scary because just like the Jewish troublers, we do it and we think that it's more Christian. True Christians will keep the law of Moses. And Paul goes, hello? How many times have you heard those statements? True Christians will. And we're really just smuggling in an ism an elementary principle of the world, a way that defines ourselves and those around us. Again, the Old Testament law is our Old Testament. The commandments reflect the character of our God. Therefore, they have value of us. And so it can be hard to notice when we pivot and transition from identifying not as being saved by Jesus to being defined by something else. A lot of times we attach it to his name. Again, like we talked about last week, what Paul is calling us to is for our core identity, our core philosophy, to be defined not by who we are, or what we have, or what we've earned, but by by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Either you're going to define yourself intrinsically or extrinsically. Either you're going to uh, look at at the world through the lens of all of these value systems that are competing for our attention all the time, or you're going to be recalibrated through the lens of the gospel. That Christ died to save sinners of whom I am a chief. Either you will be defined by the things that this world loves or the fact that God so loved the world. And they look completely different. Paul uses a totally different metaphor in Romans, and we'll move on just after this, but it helps us get at this. He says, do not be conformed to this world. External pressure shaping you in its image, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind transformation is change it's from within it's becoming instead of being d-shaped it's not deformation it's formation adoption now last week we got a chance to talk a little bit about assurance how do i know that i'm a part of the family of god And again, he gives us a point here. What Paul's concern here is not strictly doctrinal, and it's not strictly experiential. It has both components. So notice what he says after he says we've received adoption. Verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is what he says. He says, because you've been adopted into the family of God, You've been given the inheritance of the family, and the first down payment of that is the Holy Spirit. And so now you don't just have the Son of God as your brother and your Savior. You have the Spirit of the Son of God coming to dwell within you. And notice here, it says that that Spirit comes into our hearts and then cries out, Abba, Father. Now here's the thing. I think a lot of us, when we look for assurance and affirmation that we truly are known by God and know God, we think of what happens to Jesus when he's baptized. When a voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. And so we long for and we look for those those experiences where we hear a voice from heaven and we go, now I know that I know that I know. But is that what Paul talks about here? No, it's, it's really strange. If we had to ask, answer the question, according to verse 6, how do you know that you're a child of God? It's because you have a longing for your heavenly Father. It's not what the Father says about you, it's that you find in yourself crying out, Abba, Father. It's not an affirmation of His love, it's an openness to it. You see the difference here? In fact, that word, Abba, is not a Greek word, it's Aramaic. It's of the colloquial language of the Jews, uh, and it, it it is a kindly and childlike title for a father. The Greek word pater is the other one here, but Abba, father, is unique. Where does it come from? Why is he telling Galatians about this Aramaic word? It's because it's the word that Jesus taught us to pray. Abba, Father. That was the language that Jesus used to address God and he calls us to use the same language because he is our Abba as well. But again, what does the work of the Spirit look like in your life here? It looks like longing. It looks like crying out. Let me put it this way. The transition that we experience, death to life, darkness to light, before you knew God to knowing God, is the cultivation of a longing for just such a relationship. It's the revelation that God is your Father and you want to know Him and be known by Him. It's a crying out to Him. Paul says, if you have that, what does he say in verse 7? You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then an heir through God. Now, this is pretty powerful, because up to this point, Paul's been talking about who are the descendants of Abraham who get all the blessings that were promised to the descendants of Abraham. The question is, are you part of Abraham's family? And he's been arguing up to this point, yes, through Jesus Christ, you are. But now we find out that the way God did that is not just to adopt you into Abraham's family tree, but to adopt you into his own family. And so we're not just the children of Abraham. We are the sons of God. Heirs in God's family. Inheritors. The more that you meditate on that, the more that you understand it, the more you realize that Paul was totally right to push that here. What is his question here? He says, why would you go back to this or to this? when you have already, present tense, this. The Jews say, to have a better relationship with God, you need these things. And he says, you already have the Abba Father. You already have the full relationship with God, readily available in Jesus Christ. To settle for less would not just be to choose something less. It would be to neglect what you have. It would be as if you were that inheritor of all these things and it comes into your possession and you're jealous of the guy in the studio apartment down the street with the new Xbox. It's all yours. It doesn't make any sense. But again, let me remind you as we've seen week after week after week, the inheritance, the reward, the benefit, the blessing is God himself. It's not that God doesn't do amazing things for his people. But understanding what God has done in Jesus Christ draws you to the giver, not just the gift. It connects you with the Father, not just the Father's inheritance. It establishes a relationship of love and contentment and joy because that's the narrative of the whole Bible. What's wrong with you as a human being? That because of sin, you have been separated from the God who created you to be in relationship with him and what has God done according to the gospel let me read it to you again but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that right? redemption, forgiveness its purposeful it leads somewhere to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says, you're already in the house. You're already part of the family. You're already a child in good standing. In fact, you're already a full-blown inheriting adult. So don't be distracted by the other things the weak and worthless elementary principles. Don't be tempted to define yourself by someone else's last name. We're called to travel in all the ways and places of the world, but we're only to identify with one home, and that home is the family of God, because we have been adopted as his children. Let's pray. Father, oftentimes our attraction to the elementary principles of the world is shown in times of hardship and shown in times of blessing. Often we're tempted to define ourselves by what we don't have, that if we had, all would be okay. And sometimes we're defined by what we do have that makes life worth living and therefore needs to be protected at all costs. but in Jesus Christ, what we have cannot be taken. Cannot be lost. Because it's not based on us, but on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Because it's not based on what we have done for God, but what God has done for us. Let us be a grace-lensed people that see our own lives and our own troubles and our own decisions and the people around us that we work with and live with and fight with. Let us see them through the lens of the God who in the fullness of time sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us so that we might receive our adoption as sons. I pray, God, that we would recognize and lean into this experience of your spirit that works in our heart, that cultivates a longing for a relationship with you that is deeper and truer. I pray that our own hearts and our own voices would join your spirit in chorus and say, yes, Abba Father. And I pray for any who is here this morning who does not not yet know you, let them realize that that invitation is there, that the door to the household of God, that that invitation to be adopted and become your child is open to them. Help them to surrender everything else that defines them and receive it this morning. And if you don't know Jesus, I'd like to invite you to receive that invitation, to recognize that God knows your issues and your troubles, your past. And his hand is extended even this morning, inviting you into a relationship with him. A cleaning of the slate. And yes, he calls you to repent, to turn away from all those things, but he's calling you to turn unto himself. His love, his peace, his power, his goodness, his faithfulness, his fatherliness. as we worship this morning I pray that the worship would be purifying that we would experience an identification with the family of God and the things of God and the ways of heaven and the gift of Jesus that just eradicates all of these other propensities we have to return to the elementary ways of viewing life I pray this in Jesus name